just by having a two millimeter restoration, the tooth is now bending and flexing much different than the natural tooth. Biomimetic dentistry tries to mimic dentist, uh, mimic the natural tooth. That is the ultimate guide in how we restore to uh, restore a restoration. Hello, and welcome back to the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. This is another episode of the Newbie and Friends series where I catch up with old friends and friends of the podcast to get a review and an update on where they are in their careers and also to catch me up and get me re-acclimated to general dentistry after spending a year or so away. In this episode, I catch up with friend of the podcast and the most popular guest that I've had on the show. He currently holds three of the top 10 episodes downloaded this podcast, and that is Dr. Davey Allman. Dr. Davey is a big dentist in the sphere of biomimetic dentistry and is doing an amazing job teaching, educating, and bringing information to dentists from around the world with regards to biomimetic dentistry. And in this episode, I was really excited to get a chance to catch up with my old friend to talk about where he is with his current career and working in private practice with his father and also the education program that they're running, the modular-based biomimetic course that they're running, which I will link to in the show notes. In this episode, we do a bit of a review of biomimetic dentistry and I had the opportunity to ask Davey all the pressing questions I had when it comes to restorative dentistry. If there's been any updates, if there's any new or better or more modern techniques that I have not heard of or have missed out on over the last year or so. And we also talk about the management of the elusive cracked teeth, how to diagnose it, how to assess it, how to manage it. And I think that you guys will get a ton of value from that discussion because it is certainly an area in dentistry where I think a lot of us are wondering what the best management option is. Do we chase the crack? Do we ignore the crack? Do we you know, preemptively discuss this with our patients and jump in and treat even though there may not be any symptoms associated with the cracks that we're seeing on our routine exams and recalls? This week's episode of the Mini Implant Audio Residency is brought to you by my good friends at Mordent. Mordent is your proudly Australian-owned and operated partner, driving the charge forward in integrated digital dentistry. Being the only fully integrated local dental company, Mordent offers world-class education, equipment, products, solution, and support. The Mordent team of over 50 specialists are helping thousands of Australian practices to seize the opportunities in digital dentistry, transforming treatment for their dentists and the patients alike. Whether you're seeking to upskill through education or are considering implementation of digital dentistry into your practice, or just looking for some advice, I highly recommend reaching out to the Mordent team. Visit www.mordent.com.au to find out more. I will include their information in the show notes for those interested. As always, if you're new to the Newbie Dentist podcast, thank you for checking us out. Be sure to head back and check out the previous episodes that I've done on the podcast. I've had the privilege of having some amazing guests on the podcast over the past couple of years. If you're returning, thank you for your ongoing support of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I hope this podcast is full of value for you. And if you are getting value, please head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. These ratings help the show get more traction within the dental community. Without further delay, enjoy this week's episode. I am here with a podcast favorite. Uh, Actually, I was looking back at the podcast data, Davey, and you hold, uh, I think, 
three of the top 10 positions. So I think single-handedly you've kept the podcast afloat and, and, and running. So I do have to thank you. Uh, thanks again for coming on uh, today to join this uh, Nubian Friends series to do a bit of a review on biomimetic dentistry. And we'll spend some time talking about cracked teeth as well, which seems to be a big problem going around that I think a lot of dentists struggle with how to manage it. So uh, I know this is an area that uh, you spend a lot of time, you know, in clinical practice working on and also teaching uh, through the biomimetic courses and modules that you run. And we'll talk about that on the podcast as well. And um, maybe we'll see if you're actually starting enrollments for the following year so people can follow a link to that or something as well. That'd be great. So before we start, I know uh, if people haven't heard the previous episodes, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of what you're up to in your career and, and we'll take it from there. Okay, I'm Davey Alleman. I graduated in the first class from Roseman University of Health Sciences, uh, was enrolled from 2011 to 2015. Uh, after graduating, I joined the military, or I guess I signed my commission even before I started dental school. They paid for my tuition but they got to tell me where I lived, how many pushups I had to do each day uh, for four years. So I spent my first two years out of dental school in South Korea. Wow. It was a great experience. Learned a lot as a clinician and also as a soldier. And when I say soldier, it's, I use that term pretty lightly because if you saw my frame, I'm like 145 pounds <laughs> soaking wet. A strong wind will knock me over. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, after those two years in, in Korea and really trying to push myself to become a better dentist, I mean, one thing that many, many young dentists, they, they feel discouraged because they see really good dentistry done either on social media or maybe a partner that they're working with or a boss that they're working with, and they just don't know how they're going to get there. And you have to remind yourself that doing dentistry is like any other skill, whether it be learning the piano or improving at golf or running a race, it takes, it takes time. It's, it doesn't, you don't become great overnight. And it was no different for myself. And it was frustrating because I come from, you know, a heritage of key opinion leader dentists or whatever that means. Yeah. But, you know, year one was, was, was a difficult, challenging year. I was getting bombarded from leadership in the military saying, look, you shouldn't do it this way. You should place amalgams. You should place crowns. You should focus on extractions. And that was something that never got me excited about dentistry. I wanted to be a biomimetic dentist since I was in seventh grade when my dad lectured to my careers class and he was excited about dentistry. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I'm no longer going to become a pro golfer. I'm going to become a <laughs> professional dentist. That's pretty incredible. There's not many people that were in seventh grade wanting to be biomimetic dentist. So I think that's uh, pretty unique there. Yeah. Uh, so after year one, year two was a lot better. I got less pushback from, from my boss. I was able to really start incorporating a lot of the dentistry that I was trying to do in dental school, taking a lot of heat from faculty instructors. And over time, they just realized fighting with Dave is just not worth it. The guy just won't, he just won't die. <laughs> so two years in South Korea, last two years in the military was at Fort Huachuca in Southern Arizona. And, you know, there, there I became, 
I don't know. That's when we first uh, started interacting. Yeah, like it was, like, was in Arizona. So yeah, it was probably like early, maybe late 2017, early 2018. I think that was like sort of when we first uh, had our first like, intro to biomimetic dentistry podcast. So. And then after my four years in the military, I've been in private practice for about two years, uh, working with my father and also with a, with another doctor that he trained over a decade ago. That's awesome. And tell us a little bit about the, the courses, the biomimetic courses that you guys are running as well. Um, I know you mentioned um, in the pre-interview chat that it's sort of growing quite nicely and you're helping a lot of dentists from sort of all over the world. Uh, what's it like for uh, next year? I know if you are interested in, in learning these modular-based, you know, curriculum-based uh, courses, which are really nice and structured. Um, are you still accepting enrollments for next year or is that full already as well? Uh, yeah, we're, we're, still, we're still accepting uh, enrollments. We'll start uh, the January module sometime in January. Mm-hmm. Uh, when this is being recorded, we are literally like three days away from uh, starting the September and final mastership for 2021. Now, when I got out of the military, I had no, I had no dreams of, of teaching. I just wanted to fix teeth. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to fix teeth the best I could. I wanted to get better um, the following day than I was the previous day. Now, when when I got out of the military, there were some, there were some shifts and, you know, my, my sister, who was really the, like the brainchild with this idea of going on to an online format, this was pre COVID. And so she's explaining to my dad, who at the time is 68, 69 years old, that you're no longer going to be getting on planes and you're going to be lecturing to to live audiences, but you're going to be lecturing from a computer. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's asking me if I can, you know, update some, some of the presentations. <sighs> and I'm just thinking, and I just turn into my dad. I'm like, what's zoom. Now, now I think our first interview was, it was on zoom. zoom. Yeah. And I had a hard time like downloading the software and you're like, yeah. where are you? And, and now it's something that I'm using it's, every week it's or crazy. Like every day, like, you know, interacting with doctors like you in Australia. Um, before I had this uh, this call, I did um, two mentoring one-on-one calls with a doctor in Ireland and another one from Scotland. Nice. And it's just really interesting how a technology that was so foreign three years ago when I first met you, Omid, yeah, is, is now every day. Oh, I don't want to say it's my life, but. <laughs> It, what I'm upset about is, you know, I, I think I would be a pretty big early adopter in Zoom just using it because I remember when I started launching the podcast back in like 2017, I was trying to find what software to use to kind of connect with people. And like I was looking at Skype and like Microsoft Teams and all this stuff. So I'm upset because I started using Zoom and it's such a great, amazing product. And I could have had like a massive early head start if I actually had invested in Zoom. And now it's like once COVID came, like the Zoom stock prices like shot up. I was like, oh, oh man, I, I missed out. I should, I should have been using it. Should have invested early. But anyway, it was really good. So our, we did our very first mastership course before the world shut down and lost its mind. Yeah. Uh, and so we really didn't know how well it would be received for you know doctors. The only benefit that we could really see is that no one had to travel to Utah mm-hmm. to, to hear like a three-day lecture given by my dad. Yeah. Now, when we started doing it over a longer period of time, 
we found that over a two month span to learn a large amount of information was actually better because they could just focus on one aspect of restoring a tooth biomimetically. In other words, we are not cutting teeth down for mechanical retention and we're not um, doing preemptive endo on teeth that are testing vital. And so like the first week or the second week, you're just focusing on caries and every dentist feels like they're really good at treating decay until the first time that they put caries detecting dye yeah. and they realize where they're routinely leaving a large amount of decay and in critical areas where the pulp doesn't reside. And so as we were seeing the doctors just progress each week, that first uh, mastership uh, in 2019, it was, it was really, really eye-opening because when we saw each other in DIA, we actually hadn't, we hadn't launched it. Not yet. We You're talking about it. Yeah. We already had like a full class in January, but we were talking about the, the following one in, in March that year. And then, so we did the two months. It was really, really good. The doctors really embraced um, the material and we saw that they learned it at a better rate than doctors that were just being trained over a weekend. And that's just because the human brain can only remember about 30% of what it takes. It doesn't matter how good I teach material, the human brain can only retain 30% of what it listened to. Yeah. You have to have repetition and you have to have enough time to process a new material. Mm -hmm. If you're learning a trick on a skateboard, you have to have a previous trick in your muscle memory before you can move on to the next uh, progression. If you jump to something too soon, it doesn't matter how much you practice it. You literally don't have the neural connections to move to the next step. And so by elongating the training to a two month program and then a year long mentoring, we found that the doctors, even though we're kind of pulling back the reins in terms of how fast they're getting material and how fast they're uh, learning a technique. It's like, once the technique is, is presented, they're ready for it. And by doing that, all of a sudden the consistency among the doctors we trained improved dramatically. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think I'm a big advocate of, you know, whether in biomimetics or any sort of other aspect of dentistry, like signing up for these sort of like curriculum based long span modular things are much better because one uh you, like you said you you have the opportunity to learn something and apply it in practice and then like a month later review it and you know learn something and try it again so you're not like kind of getting dumped all this information and you kind of have to try and work through it yourself and then also like the accountability of like the monthly meetups it keeps you sort of in the loop and in that mindset of like learning and um going through something and, and understanding it so i think it's a great way of learning uh i think it's definitely a good approach to have it over zoom as well, because it's a shame for people outside of the U S to like miss out on such great content. You know, I know you got a lot of people from the UK and, and Europe, and I know there's a few Australians as well that do the course with you guys. So uh, yeah, it's nice that they all have access. And one thing that's so great is, is a doctor can literally not have to be there presently. Mm -hmm. It's better if they're there live, but I can't tell you how many doctors we were, we're just watching the recordings. Our first we, we had no idea when to put the time slot. We had 10 doctors all the way from Hong Kong to, um, uh, to England. 
and then a couple in the US. Yeah. And so my sister's like trying to figure out a time <laughs> slot that would work for everybody. And the answer was, you can't pick one for, that works for everybody. So she picks like 2.30 our time, mm-hmm. which is in the middle of the work day for US doctors. It's like <laughs> the, uh, for the European doctors. And then we had this doctor in Hong Kong and it was 5.30 a.m. So it's like, if he really wanted to, he could wake up. Yeah. But I can promise you if there was something at 5.30, I wouldn't wake up. Yeah. <laughs> so we really didn't know how, how well it was going to be for him because he was just going to get the recordings the following day. And it, it may not have been the easiest way to, to learn it, but I have, I have interactions with this doctor, you know, pretty routinely and he's doing very, very good in, in Hong Kong, but you know, the flexibility that zoom provides where you don't have to get on a plane and be jet lagged to learn about, or, and the cost and everything, like it's just incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for you to fly out to, to Seattle to do a couple of days um, with 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 Dr. Kois, I mean, the Not travel too, yeah. alone just adds another hotel days. time off work. Like it's just like it's a huge uh, double cost essentially because you're missing out yeah. on income as well. Yeah, the double cost is really what gets you. It's the time yeah. out of the office as long along with the travel, and then you yeah. have to talk top that off with the jet lag that you're mm-hmm. you're recovering from. So. You know, for the international doctors, this is a game changer. Yeah. And for the domestic doctors, you know, they they can come see us anytime. But yeah. one thing that we didn't know is you really get to know a lot of the participants better in this format because mm-hmm. you actually see their screen, you see their name, and each week you're you're talking about, hey, how are you doing? So and so, like, how are things in in X part of the country? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, everybody in the group starts becoming well acquainted with everybody yeah, because quite nice. they see each other on a front row basis instead of like in a big Back turn to everyone. Yeah, that's no, pretty. It's a it's a great medium for sure. So if you um, after we're done, if you can send me a link to the, the website and the platform and uh, information about next year's, I'll put in the show notes for anyone interested and they can kind of check it out and um, and have a think about signing up. I definitely encourage people to do so. So let's um, let's shift over to biomedics a little bit. Um, I, you know, last time we chatted was a couple of years ago. So I'm sure there's been some innovations or changes. Um, last time we talked, we talked about, you know, obviously like the, like the bio base and making sure your DJ is clear and, you know, a couple of millimeters around that peripheral, peripheral seal zone and, um, the hierarchy of bondability and lending, letting, uh, bonds mature and things like that. So I got some, some keywords in there, but, um, why don't we, I, I guess like, let's, um, in terms of how are we going to phrase this is let's say so you're working on a lower six, uh, there's an MOD on it uh amalgam MOD because i'll just a case from yesterday i saw so let's do upper upper left uh, first molar there's a large existing sort of mod amalgam patient comes in and they fractured off like the uh the uh, mesiopatal cusp or mesiobuccal cusp uh talk to me through how you assess the tooth um how you decide direct indirect how do you decide how you're going to restore it um through the lens of the biomimetic side of things so when I see a tooth that has had like a fracture of a cusp, we call this a clinical failure. The patient is aware that there is a problem mm-hmm. and they're seeking your expertise, whether you're practicing in Brazil, the U S Canada, Africa, Asia, Australia, you know, they want a dentist that's proficient in fixing their tooth. Mm-hmm. Now the real question is 
how did that tooth fracture? Yeah. And that tooth didn't just fracture overnight because all of a sudden they had additional stresses from, you know, lockdowns and COVID and uh, uncertainties. Now that definitely attributes it, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to go as far as saying that crack was beginning to be initiated or it had moved past the DEJ three, four, five years prior. Now in lesson two, we talk about structural analysis where we're analyzing the integrity of the tooth. A tooth that has not been non-restored will fracture at roughly 550 pounds of total force. I don't know what that's in kilograms. I'm sorry. Sorry. Americans. I don't know. Divided by 2.2, I think, or something. But based off of an article written in 1981, which was before I was born, it was before you were born, it showed that if you did an MOD or even an occlusal restoration that was 1.5 millimeters, it lost 40% of the fracture resistance. So instead of 500 pounds for it to ultimately fracture, it took 300 pounds. Now, if you extended that a half a millimeter, which is the thickness of your fingernail, you lost an additional 20%. So you went from 500 to 300 now to 200 for a relatively conservative um, restoration, an MOD that's two millimeters. If you did that in dental school, you'd be like, where am I going to put the filling? Yeah. <laughs> your, your graders like, is this parallel enough? Is this, <laughs> you know, how good are your hands? You seem really, really shaky. Yeah. This maybe this is not for you. Yeah. But anyway, it's like <laughs> just by having a two millimeter restoration, the tooth is now bending and flexing much different than the natural tooth. Biomimetic dentistry tries to mimic dentist, uh, mimic the natural tooth. That is the ultimate guide in how we restore to uh, restore a restoration. Now, what gives a natural tooth the ability to withstand fracture? Well, a researcher named uh, Tim Rainey in Refurio, Texas, along with uh, Graham Milicic in, in New Zealand, they really studied uh, the nature and the substructure underneath the occlusal enamel. And they found that there are these webs of enamel that connect uh, cusp to cusp on both uh, mandibular molars and maxillary molars. And these subocclusal transverse ridges reinforce and buttress the tooth so it's able to withstand uh, multi-directional loads. Mm -hmm. Now, as soon as you cut into these subocclusal transverse ridges, or you can call them rainy, rainy webs or rainy ridges, for sure, since Tim Rainey was the first person to discover these, this web of enamel that is um, connecting um, just above the DEJ. If you cut into this, it's the first step to weakening the tooth. Just like if you open up a can of Coke, a can of Pepsi, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's much easier to have a permanent deformation of the, the can than if the can is intact. Yeah. So everyone, a lot of people have heard the idea of like a, um, a compression dome. That's, you know, the same concept you want to, you know, regain the connection side to side, top to bottom. And if you're putting everything under compression, then 
the tooth is, is bending and flexing in more compressive rather than tensile loads. So once you've cut a conservative, uh, a conservative class one that has removed the subocclusal transverse ridges, you need to think that these teeth are moving. Teeth aren't static. Yeah. So a virgin tooth, when it's being chewed upon, it moves three microns. That was shown by Manya and Oganasayan in, in 2012. Now, if you do slot preps, it, the tooth still moves at roughly around five microns. So it still has those subocclusal transverse ridges. The tooth still has its structural integrity. It's not at risk of fracture. But now, as soon as you go into the occlusal portion, all of a sudden the micro movements change completely, especially with an unbonded restoration. And it goes from three microns to when you do an MOD to 175 microns. 170 microns over time fatigues the material, it fatigues the tooth and allows a crack to initiate and propagate over time. It may not lead to a, cat a, a clinical or a catastrophic failure where part of the tooth or a large portion of the tooth is, has been lost, but just like a crack in a windshield doesn't just start across the entire span. It starts yeah. as a rock chip. And so the earlier you can intervene in a crack, the sooner you can um, regain that, that connectivity. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a perfectly bonded restoration, that MOD that was moving 170 mi 175 microns, can now move at 7.58 microns. So it's not bioreplication, but it's biomimetic. It's mimicking. Yeah. It's closer it's to close. that three microns than, you know, 175, which is a world apart. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. So if, so in a non-cashovic situation and we'll get to it. So let's, let's, let's finish off this uh, train of thought then. So with this tooth, then, so now you've, you've assessed it um you've looked at the options the tooth is you know the margins are sort of super gingival what's left of the fracture component of it um you you take out the existing amalgam and so how do you let's talk through like the restore like just like the restorative side of it so as soon as we diagnose that the tooth has lost its structural integrity or it's structurally compromised we base that off of measurements the first measurement would be the isthmus width mm -hmm. an isthmus that is greater than two millimeters you can relate it back to the Larson article. It's lost 60% of its fracture resistance. Mm -hmm. So this isn't going to be just a simple filling. This is going to be more time consuming mm -hmm. in order for us to regain the connection. Yeah. And yeah. the second measurement for a horizontal uh, compromise is uh, a cusp thickness. A thin cusp will act more like a, de like a dehydrated portion of the tooth and it will be less resistant to fracture. And as soon as the cusp is less than three millimeters, as the, as the dentin becomes more dehydrated or that, um, that thickness becomes less and less, then that 175 microns becomes very significant mm -hmm. because it only takes 6% of the cuspal thickness for a crack to initiate. That was shown by uh, Kishin and Vendotten. And so if you have a four millimeter cusp, it takes 240 microns so or so-and-so to get a crack to initiate. Mm -hmm. So it, 175 microns is still going to 
it's not going to crack. Yeah. You know, as soon as yeah. you get to like, you know, two mic, uh, two millimeters or even three millimeters, then you're right around that 175 microns movements in that at, at any time or any kind of chew, you might be able to get enough movement that all of a sudden the tooth doesn't come back to its original, original shape. It's, it's past its elastic limit. Okay. Oh, interesting. So, so as soon as you have a, a diagnosis of structural compromise, you should be thinking more in the terms of an indirect approach yeah. rather yeah. than a simple 20 minute filling. Now in biomimetic dentistry, you'll never do a 20 minute filling, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but that's kind of my criteria. If there's a wide isthmus, if there's a thin cusp, then I'm looking more towards indirect. partial coverage. Yeah. Okay. Um, so with the, and I've noticed a lot of these ones, so you'll, I'm sure everyone kind of listening would have seen some of these. So before you restore it, whether you're going to go ahead and prep it for like an onlay or just, or build up a core to come and restore later on. So you'll remove the existing uh, amalgam there. And you'll, uh, even the one I saw um, yesterday when I was talking to you, I was, I was at work, the other cusp, the remaining cusp had, like you can see sort of running from the, the, the marginal ridge, like the floor of the prep across like there's a crack underneath the cusp that you can see sort of within the tooth itself so you can sell that you can see that cusp is going to go pretty soon as well by the looks of that um but well i want to get to like a cracks is a separate thing so let's talk about the restorative side so let's say this tooth was uh indicated for direct restoration um talk me through sort of you know um you know you got your la's on rubber dams on um let's talk to like the actual restorative protocol that you're following now. And one, one uh, thing, if you can touch on, and I have no idea what it is. And it's like those little ribbons that I've seen people on Instagram and stuff putting on their teeth. So if you can include that in your restorative plan and why that'd be cool too. Okay. So the first thing that I want to do is I want to establish a caries free and a crack free peripheral seal zone. The peripheral seal zone is the two millimeters inside the DEJ. This is an area that is, well away from the pulp, you can be very aggressive in removing tooth structure without running the risk of um, having a, a bleed from nicking the nerve. Yeah. Once I have that peripheral seal zone clean, then I can start having a foundation and have a compressive restoration that supports anything that's inside that may be closer to the nerve that I wasn't able to completely excavate. So we have a clean peripheral seal zone, and we'll also have a crack-free peripheral seal zone where we're removing all of the cracks and all the decay in this area. Yeah. And we know what our bond strength is because by using caries detecting dye, we can visualize the hierarchy of bondability. Now, inside the peripheral seal zone, we now name that the central stop zone. This is three millimeters from a mar an adjacent marginal ridge and five millimeters occlusally. So um, if you're in that, in those measurements, you should just stop drilling stop what you're doing. And then you're going to take some, uh, take a different approach to either protect the weaker bonds mm -hmm. that you are trying to maintain the seal or <clears throat> bridge or redirect forces on some cracks that you weren't able to completely excavate because there's no such thing as like ideal dentistry typically when a patient hasn't been coming in and you weren't able to diagnose something early. Yeah. So once I have a clean peripheral seal zone, a clean crack, a crack free peripheral seal zone and my central stop zone is 
as clean as it's going to be based off of the measurements of three and five, then I will uh, air abrade the tooth. This will help compact and minimize the smear layer and make my self-etch adhesive much more conducive and increase the bond strength uh, in the range of what the tensile strength of the DEJ, right around 51 megapascals. So I'll prime for 20 to 30 seconds, air dry the tooth, remove the solvent, and then place the adhesive, which is a more hydrophobic layer that interacts very well with the difunctional monomer of the priming step, and then light cure. As soon as I've cured my adhesive, that's when the clock starts. Yeah. You need to allow your bond to mature in order for it to gain its maximum strength. And bonds take time to develop, whether you're gluing something onto a wall, mm -hmm. if you're gluing two pieces of wood, or if you're gluing together a tooth. Just because you've shined a light on it doesn't mean that reaction has stopped. It will continue to go for you know up to 24 hours. So now I need to make sure that I don't stress my adhesive by getting impatient and begin layering too soon. Because as soon as I start placing restorative material, as that material shrinks, it stresses the hybrid layer. This is the one area that I do not want any stress to accumulate. I don't want any stretching. I don't want any weakening at this interface because that is where recurrent decay will occur. So I'll wait a period of time. I'll go drink some Mountain Dew, go for a walk. What was that number? We said like five minutes, it gets like 90 yeah. some odd percent. Of uh, five minutes is, is right around 90%. If yeah. you waited 30 minutes, it would be around 95%. If you waited two weeks, you'd get to that 100%. Yeah. So are you happy with five minutes? Can I be, can I be guilt free? And then I'll go ahead. Like even in that five minutes, I'll, I'll place a thin layer of flowable. I just don't want to get thicker than 1.5 millimeters mm -hmm. of restorative material in that first five minutes. Yeah. That, um, my dad terms that the all Mandela Perry rule yeah. where if you can keep the, the volume of composite thin enough in that first five mil, mil, five minutes, you're tricking the composite and shrinking towards the tooth. So you're not stressing um, the hybrid layer by connecting yeah. the hierarchies of bondability too soon. And so I'll do my resin coat. If I need to place a rib on fiber, either due to high C factor, uh, inner or outer carries that is left in the central stop zone or a crack that's left in the central stop zone, then I'll place it there. And this will help uh, alleviate some of the polymerization stress and also uh, create what we call a fail safe. So if we're going to try and design a failure, I want that to fail above the fiber that is being placed. I don't want it to ever fail at the adhesive interface. So is that the indication for putting these, uh, uh, what's it called? The river bond? Or? Yeah, river bond. bond. So yeah. is the indication of that, you're, so you've established a peripheral seal that's clean, no cracks, but over where the pulp would be, you've left some carries or there's a crack mm -hmm. running over that area. So you put that, um, so that's like the okay, the stopping point. And you could even put that on some very thin tooth structure if you were going to restore that all direct. Mm -hmm. It kind of, as the material polymerizes, as the composite polymerizes, what ends up happening is the fiber will, will kind of separate and disfigure rather than delaminate against a dentin wall mm -hmm. or a, a dentin floor. And you put this on once, so you've, you've done your prime and bond, you've put a layer of uh, flowable 
you put the the rubber wand in and you put flowable over it again or how do you like uh, I typically I'll go back and I'll wet the the rib on fiber before I've um in bond or yeah yeah in rate in regular bond yeah so I'll do a, a layer of of restorative composite put that really thin place my um rib on fiber into that uncured composite uh adapt that as well as I can and mm -hmm. then uh, re-wet the, the fiber until it's well impregnated with also the resin. Mm -hmm. Now ribbon doesn't bond, but it rather just entangles. There's no double yeah. bonds to, to have a chemical, um, uh, interaction, but what ends up happening is it just slightly separates during polymerization and it allows for the composite and the restorative material below the fiber to shrink towards the tooth and the composite above to, to shrink in whatever way it wants to. How often would you use this like in a given week? Is this like a pretty common thing or just. Yeah. Like if there's room to, to place rib on, yeah. if you have high C factor, a large structurally compromised tooth, there really isn't a wrong way to um, utilize the material. Mm -hmm. You just don't want the fiber out into the cable surface. You always want it inside the peripheral seal zone or in that yeah. central stop zone. Mm -hmm. So if it's a very shallow prep, you wouldn't place it. You don't want it to get exposed to the oral environment. It will pick up um, water and will create a graying out of the, sure. of the respiration. Are you using etch at all anymore? Or are you just going like self-etching primers? For the so, so I use... I use etching later on in the process. So I'll do my dentin replacement. So I'll continue layering. Mm -hmm. And what I'll do is I'll reprep my enamel uh, lightly with the, with the diamond burr and remove some of the adhesive that I've already placed. Yeah. And then once I've done that, then I will etch the enamel. If it slumps onto the composite, no big deal. Mm -hmm. Now there's a really important paper that not a lot of people understand. It's by uh, Proenza, and it shows that if you're using a self-etch adhesive, if you get phosphoric acid etch onto dentin, you lose 50% of your bond strength with SE bond. Yeah. So instead of like 40 or 50, any dentin that's been contaminated is dropped down to 25 or 20. <clears throat> is, there to is there a way to reverse this if it happens or you're, you're kind of... Well, go ahead and reprep a little bit. Okay. Like, that's the only but way. The okay. But the best way to do it is to seal your dentin, mm -hmm. do some of your dentin replacement, and then go back and then refresh some of your enamel margins and then place your etchant because I don't care how good your hands are. Like you're going to get like a little air bubble and it's just going to go. Yeah. It's going to go everywhere. Yeah. And so, but if it's, but if it's on the composite, it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. I just don't want to uh, compromise my, my bond to dentin and with self-etched adhesives, uh, particularly SE bond and SE protect, you need uh, the hydroxy appetite that's encrusting the collagen fibrils because it'll form an ionic bond with the MDP molecule. Mm -hmm. And uh, Fukugawa and Yoshida showed this uh, in, in some research that was done in the last decade. And so if you remove those minerals, if you remove the calcium and the phosphates of the hydroxyapatite, then all of a sudden the MDP can't form that ionic connection. And now it's just relying mainly on a micromechanical and with self-etch adhesives, that's not their strength. They utilize it, but they utilize both an ionic and a micromechanical 
um, adhesion and retention. Okay. And so in a weird, in a way, if you do it this way, in that, that five minute window, like you've done your, your, like, say, say if you like OptiBond, like primer bond layer of flowable, um, less than 1.5 millimeter increment, you then have time to, you know, reprep the enamel margins, put your like matrices and stuff in etch, and that all kind of goes in that five minute window anyway. So it's not just sitting there idly doing nothing. You can be productive in that, in that five minutes and like, you know, re-etching some of your, or re-prepping some of your enamel margins, or if you're, if you like to place your matrix later in the process, Mm -hmm. that's, that's a good, a good use of time. It'll just benefit your, your, your adhesion and your connection. Are you normally doing your dentine sealing portion of this with a matrix already in, or do you do it with? I, I do it with the matrix in. Okay. So you got, um, you got the good, but then how do you, like, so when you're prepping the enamel margin again, you're not worried about like dinging your wedge, uh, your no, wedge or matrix. No, ma- I'm mainly just reprepping the occlusal portion. Maybe. Okay. Oh, because you've, a, you've sealed the floor off as well. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going like deep in the preparation or, or deep in the proximal area. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because like, like I said, I don't have the best hands. I'll, I'll yeah, I was gonna it. say that's that's impressive to uh, <laughs> to do that. Okay, so so that's so not too. Uh, one question I had um, that came up yesterday actually was, uh, so you air dry. So if you're using just like OptiBond as an example, because I know like if you're using like the your favorite uh, like Scotch bonds and um, you air dry the adhesive right to to evaporate some of the solvent. But do you air dry the OptiBond uh, bond or do you, once you've set it? you just air dry the primer, but you don't air dry the bond itself. Yeah. The only time you need to air dry something is if there's solvent, if yeah. there's solvent you need to remove either the, the worst solvent is acetone. Mm-hmm. Um, a better solvent is ethanol and another solvent that is commonly used is actually water. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime that you can remove the, the solvent, you will have better uh, interaction when you place the hydrophobic layer of your adhesive. Mm-hmm. The way I view solvent in your adhesive and everybody should be able to get this because everyone's got this app on their phone that's called uber or lyft so okay you're in melbourne and you are going to go out and you're going to go hang out with some friends but they're like parking is impossible mm-hmm. so what do you do you take uber. An uber right yeah. you know some uber drivers are great conversationalists other ones it's like please don't talk to me. I've got my headphones in, like just take me to my place. Now, how awkward would it be no matter how good of an interaction you had with your Uber driver? If he's like, Hey, is it cool if I hang out with you and your, and your, and your buddies? <laughs> yeah. What are you doing tonight? <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you doing? They're like, well, we're going to do this, this, and this, but you know, how do you break it to them that they're not, they're not quite invited. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of what solvent is. Solvent okay. is Uber drive is, is the Uber. It's getting you to the, where it needs yeah. to go. It's a mode of transport. Yeah. But now you got to get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> so you pay, so typically you pay them. Yeah. Then they take off, they go yeah. to their next ride and you go hang out with your, your buddies. So what solvent does is it carries a hydro, uh, a difunctional hydrophilic monomer, um, such as HEMA or MDP mm-hmm. that will interact well with the, the inner tubular, uh, dentin. And the collagen and the hydroxyapatite that make up a material that is 50%, 50% inorganic or only 50% inorganic. Yeah. Okay. So it's a very difficult surface. So you need that solvent to carry those hydrophilic monomers 
And then once the solvent's gone, then you can place that hydrophobic layer of your adhesive after and it interacts very well with the, um, with the portion that is more hydrophobic on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't, um, it didn't like it. I, I put I, the first time I wasn't sure. So I did it. I put some like air on the, uh, off the bond and it's like so thick. So I just kind of started, it got like a weird texture to it. And it kind of just yes. kind of looked good so, so when you have like some pooling of the adhesive, because it doesn't have the solvent, mm-hmm. what you do is you just take a dry micro brush and you just wick away that, yeah. that excess. Okay. Now, so that'd be, that'd be a problem right with the adhesive that I use SC protect and is that it's very radiolucent on the x-ray. So if you mm-hmm. don't wick away like the pooling up against the band, because I put a band in initially, mm-hmm. you'll have a radiolucency right in that area. It looks like and that carries and stuff. Be misinterpreted yeah. as recurrent decay or a gap or something yeah. like that. Optimon FL, I believe, is more ra- uh, radiopaque and is mm-hmm. less likely to show up like that. But yeah. still the same thing. Don't introduce air into a completely hydrophobic adhesive. Um, you know, just wick it away. The yeah. only time you have to introduce air is when you're removing the, the Uber driver or the solvent. Yeah. And what's your thoughts on some of these, uh, uh, I think it's like GC, like the genial flow and genial universal injectables and these kind of things. Um, I, 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 they work really well in my hands in terms of our material, but so like in terms of uh, bulk strength, um, I never, you know, finish a restoration with those in terms of like the occlusal surface or anything like that. I'll put like proper composite, but, um, I do a lot of like the dentine replacement, like portion of it with that kind of stuff a lot. Um, do you have much experience with like, just like flowables? Cause they seem to be improving a lot compared to our traditional, um, flowables that we would have had that are maybe a little bit more, uh, less radiopaque as well, or weren't filled as much. So didn't have the same strength. So typically even like there's been a lot of improvement in flowable composites. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say there's still a long way to go before I really start to, you know, change, um, change protocols. Mm-hmm. So flowables, just speaking, you know, in the whole family, family is that they shrink too much and that they are too flexible. Mm-hmm. So the modulus elasticity is, um, is lower than dentin in most cases. And they shrink about twice as much as most uh, restorative composites. And if they shrink twice as much as most restorative composites, which shrink too much, because if you bulk fill a restorative composite, you know, you're going to lose 50% of your bond strength Mm -hmm. right off the bat. So with flowable, you're going to have some of those same issues. Now, if you keep a flowable or an injectable incredibly thin, you know, less than a millimeter, remember composites are stupid. Like, They'll, they'll go where the physics and, you know, tells it to go. Yeah. If you trick it to think it's so thin that it can only shrink in one direction, it doesn't matter if you're in a high C factor preparation because those two walls aren't connected. Mm -hmm. So I would use those materials as just as simply as a resin coat. And then I would layer with, with a restorative composite that, mimics the uh, the modulus similar to that of intermediate dentin and yep. the best composites and older composites called apx from qra mm-hmm. uh, voco also makes a very nice uh, dentin replacement um, but as far as like the gc uh, gc composites i haven't used them as much 
actually i've never i've never used them but yeah there are some aesthetic composites that i'd like to to use for like some enamel replacements like that are just and then, do you do you heat your composites or um i only really heat my composite for cementation okay so anytime that you increase uh, or add heat you're adding more energy into the system so the molecules are shaking and they're moving to a, a lot a lot faster and so as soon as you have that added energy then the stress as it's being polymerized can actually be a little bit uh, more than I'm comfortable with. But if you keep it thin enough, it's probably no big deal. But most people that are trying to like heat composites, they're trying to get it so it's less viscous so they can put a larger increment okay. faster. Yeah. And there's well, one thing that I do. It's like, I don't talk fast. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't do dentistry fast. That's just the rhythm. It's, it's a personality thing. Um, what about the delivery of composite? Are you, uh, do you like deliver, like it's like on a, on a like a, uh, delivery and you just like pick it up with like an instrument and bring it to the tooth or do you have the injectable kind of and then yeah, you I just, it. so i've got the gun yeah and i just like cut little balls like little two millimeter two millimeter balls and then i put them in the in the restoration and then i pack them so they become thin yeah one millimeter increments i think i'm yeah i personally i'm too reliant on fobos i think because i because I don't use like composites as much or I've, I've used like warmed or heated composites a bit. I, I, it don't, it doesn't handle well in my hands. Like I don't feel comfortable if I've like prepped, like, especially like one of like a, like a more of like a slot prep, like a smaller MO or a DO to like, am I getting this down enough? Is it actually going to be sitting properly where it needs to go? That's like my sort of way where I find flowable just in my head makes more sense. Cause it'll, uh, it'll sort of like, sit there nicer and be more adaptable and it's just like a little perio probe just to make sure there's no air bubbles and things and yeah so to answer that like so do that with your resin coating that's mm -hmm. that technique is great and then for these little difficult areas to adapt mm -hmm. do just a little dot of flowable and then take a thin increment of composite and something mm -hmm. that's not a very stiff composite is better yeah um, and then you just you push it into that small uh, so the flowable kind of yeah, so it's called, it's called a, snow, a snow plow technique. You're from yeah. you're from Canada. You live in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> you know what a snow plow is. Yeah, uh, <sighs> it'll get it. But and then and then compact it with like a medium micro brush. It doesn't have a lot of tug back. Yeah, no, it's good. Just, uh, it's it's good to um, just have you on and pick your brain on these things because it's like stuff you just do it every day and you like don't. But much, I mean, most people, I, I know the biomimetic dentists obviously think about this stuff a lot, but the average dentist is not thinking about this stuff too much. But um, I, I think, you know, on, on the spectrum of, you know, doing biomimetic dentistry to just doing like shoddy dentistry, I, I like to be sort of and and you know, at least one standard deviation above the mean. So I'm trying to get to that point on a predictable level. So, yeah. <laughs> we can get you there, Omid. No problem. So I, I, you know, I got my rubber dam. Sometimes I use Scotch bond still uh, if, it's, if it's there. I, I always think of you when I do, but um, you know, at least I'm like trying to do my best with what we've got time-wise and material-wise and things like that. You so. want to know how to make Scotch bond work really well? Yeah. Bart Vammerbeek showed that if you use Scotch bond universal as your priming step, and you air dry it and then on top of that you put the adhesive so the second bottle of se bond two yeah then you got bond strength similar to se bond okay nice. so, you, so you just need a very hydrophobic uh addition to your adhesive so, so like, you put your scotch bond don't cure it just air dry it and then yeah. you put the se you're bond. literally you're literally using scotch bond universal as your bottle one and then yeah. 
anyway it's still a compromise but it's like it's the only way that you can i wonder i wonder like uh i mean i'm not like you know sponsored by any of these companies or anything but like as a financial way is it cheaper to do it that way versus buying the se protect like that i wouldn't know but it's probably about the same yeah so it would be much perks anyways but um no it's, i mean I'm, as an associate anyways like i'm not too fussed about the cost of the materials so it's just like if you can get it you can get it and if you can use it then um but the optibond i do i do like the like uh, how viscous it is and then just like it, it looks like it just it looks more substantial than what you would use otherwise with like a scotch yeah that's what fl stands for it stands for filled yeah that's that's what fl and optibond fl it's yeah. not fluoride but rather <laughs> the filler content that they put in it yeah um okay let's talk, let's talk about a little bit about early diagnosis of cracks and more so, I just want, I'm just curious because obviously you, you do deal with this stuff a lot in terms of what you communicate to your patient to, because, you know, some of the, the tug back or resistance you get from a patient, um, you go for a hygiene visit and they've got all these like old amalgams that have been there 20, 30 years, asymptomatic, not giving them any grief. You're a new dentist. You walk in and be like, uh, you have cracks on all your teeth and we got to, you know, we got to do something about it. We got to replace the restorations or we got to uh, go on to an indirect. Um, so one is, can you tell me a little bit about how you communicate the importance or what needs to be done with the patient? And then in terms of treatment, so if it's like a occlusal amalgam, you talked about earlier about how much the strength force or the force needed to cause cracks reduces with these big you know, occlusal restorations and the depth of them. But do we, as a baseline, if we see a crack, replace the restoration with composite, so this is more adhesive versus like wedging, or do we take it out and just go on lay or cuspal coverage every time? Tell me a little bit about that workflow or mindset a little bit. So the first thing that I'll do is I'll, I'll ask the patient if I see a peripheral rim fracture where a fracture is, you know, on the edge and it's usually associated with the isthmus that's greater than two millimeters. Mm -hmm. You really don't know if that crack is passed into the dentin or if it's stopped at the DEJ. Mm -hmm. That's what the DEJ does. It, literally redirects forces and it acts as a natural crack stopper. Mm -hmm. So if you see a crack into a marginal ridge, it's a red flag. Mm -hmm. There's a chance that this tooth is at risk of fracture. So the next thing I'll do is I'll assess the isthmus width, the cusp uh, thickness, maybe a box depth. And I'll ask the patient, uh, Ms. Jones, you've got a large restoration here. Uh, the, the restoration's holding up okay, but what I'm seeing is some accelerated fatigue of your tooth. Have you ever had any teeth that you've had some intermittent pain on biting? And oftentimes they'll say, uh, occasionally when I bite on like an almond or something like that. And then you can, you know, go into the conversation of you've got a crack that is undermining the filling. And as that crack is moving, this is what's elucidating the pain. This is what the hydrodynamic theory of pain, you know, you don't have to talk about that, but <laughs> you got a crack. And when the crack yeah, moves, that's when, you're, when yeah. the crack isn't moving or the crack is mineralizing on the pulpal side, then that's when you forget about it. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the patients you'll see, they'll say, I can, don't remember any of it. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's a, it's a guy, it's like, they don't care about their teeth. They, they try and block out, you know, any kind of pain. I've got a high tolerance for pain, yeah. but you still talk to them in terms of this tooth is at risk of fracture. Uh, the sooner we treat a fracture, 
usually the more conservative we can be. Now we don't know until we open this up, but, you know, I want to, you know, at least prepare you for, you know, worst case scenario, we're looking at more of an indirect approach, but we'll still be able to preserve the areas of two structure that aren't undermined by cracks or decay. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> if the patient is, is proactive or maybe they've had a tooth go to root canal or maybe a tooth being lost from, from fracture, oftentimes they'll be like, I'm so glad you mentioned this. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've had a really good month of work or, you know, I just don't want to think about, you know, my teeth in the next decade. Let's, let's actually fix this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in those situations, you prepare for the worst, you figure out, if, you know, what your prep design is going to be if you're going indirect and that will help facilitate your crack dissection, which is a very um, difficult concept to master and very uncomfortable for most dentists. But if you can, you know, get the patient to understand the severity of cracks, yeah. I mean, most patients really understand the idea of a cavity. Yeah. It's like, oh, I've got a cavity. Oh, let's get this fixed. Mm -hmm. You say you got a crack and it's not symptomatic. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes yeah. it'll just be like, okay. <laughs> okay. So sometimes I'll take a picture. I'll show, I'll show them the cracks and, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll bite. Sometimes they won't. The main thing is I don't want to ever like push treatment on it, but I want to give them the best, the best information. I always like to tell the patient, look, you're the driver. You're the driver in this bus. You can determine how fast and how quickly we get to the end goal. And only, you know, the goal, I'm just the bus. Mm -hmm. I'm here to facilitate your goals and your needs. This is the best information that I have based off of the radiographs, based off of the intraoral findings. How would you like to proceed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the best way. So if, so uh, you notice the crack, they're happy to go ahead with treatment. So you, you're saying most of the time you'll say, I won't know whether we can go direct or indirect uh, until we actually get in there, remove the restoration and assess the tooth. Is that sort of how the conversation goes? Exactly. Yesterday yeah. I fixed the tooth. There was a large MOD a composite part of it had chipped away. And I, like six months ago, I think I told the patient, you know, we might be able to just redo the filling. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I opened it up, like the composite was totally like unbonded. Yeah. So it was moving 170 microns every time he was chewing. <laughs> and like, there's this huge oblique fracture undermining the tension cusps. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I tell, um, uh, tell my assistant, let's grab the camera. Let's videotape this. Let's, let's record this through the microscope because, you know, dentists are seeing this all the time and they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, we re literally recorded this, uh, yesterday. <clears throat> We onlaid the, the cusp. We yeah. onlaid the cusp, not for, uh, for a compression dome or anything like that. I onlaid the cusp so I could visualize the crack. Mm -hmm. If I try and chase a crack and undermine a cusp, the chances are I will leave a portion of it because I won't be able to see it. Yeah. If you can't see it, you can't treat it. Mm -hmm. So our recommendation is if you have deep decay, deep cracks, the most important thing is visualization. So increase your magnification and onlay cusps 
so you can get that solid foundation that will be the foundation for your biomimetic restoration. If you have a sandy or a weak foundation, it doesn't matter how pretty the top is, that tooth and that restoration won't bend and flex like a natural tooth. So I onlaid the cusps, I identified where the DEJ was and then where the crack was or originating. And I started moving my dissection away from the pulpal side. So I was moving towards the, um, the external surface and cleaning that peripheral seal zone. So it became crack free. And what ends up happening is you'll think you're at the bottom of the crack and then you'll dehydrate the tooth and the dentin on top of the crack will become more opaque. And that's because it's less hydrated. As soon as you have a crack, the pulpal fluid can't hydrate um, and give the toughness on that occlusal side of those oblique or horizontal fractures. So air dry this, this will help uh, visualize the crack again, and then continue with the dissection until after you've dehydrated it, you no longer see this milky or more opaque side of the, yeah. of the dentin. Now, vertical cracks are different. Vertical cracks what ends up happening is you have the exact same amount of hydration on both sides. Mm -hmm. so the pulp is hydrating the, the lingual and also the buccal side equally. Yeah. So it's a little e harder to visualize the crack because literally you're only looking at the crack when you dehydrate it. It's, you know, one side isn't becoming more and more apparent as the delaminated uh, dent structure. Mm -hmm. So you really need to have high magnification for vertical cracks because oblique and horizontal cracks, they're the easy ones to take out. Mm -hmm. And even if you left oblique and horizontal cracks, it's not the end of the world. Like the worst thing that's going to happen is that patient's going to lose a cusp. The tooth mm -hmm. is still restorable. Yeah. But I want you to get so good at oblique and horizontal fractures because when you have the vertical cracks, you know what to do. You know how to excavate and you actually, and you have the confidence to go down seven, eight, nine millimeters without exposing the nerve. And there's no better feeling than taking out a vertical crack because the vertical cracks are the cracks that cause teeth to lose vitality. Mm -hmm. And in worst case scenarios, they have to be extracted. Yeah. And when you're a bad exodontist like myself, <laughs> if you're bad at taking out teeth, the last thing you want to do is say, give me a 301. <laughs> it's like, no, let's, <laughs> let's treat this crack out. Let's, let's take this uh, vertical crack out early. If you just try and bond over a crack, the crack still has a potential to propagate. Yeah. You just put rib on fiber over a crack and try and bridge uh, two sides of the crack. That crack still has the potential to propagate. If you've drilled to the bottom of the crack, you can now connect the two sides cohesively. You can connect them with your adhesive procedures. And this is what engineers do. Because when engineers ignore cracks, whether it be in bridges or airplanes, guess what? People die. Yeah. <laughs> if dentists ignore cracks, teeth people died. lose a tooth. Yeah. Or the tooth dies. <laughs> Not the end of the world. Yeah. But the patient might be like, why didn't you say something five years ago? Yeah, that's the thing. So Kerry's uh, crack excavation, when do you call it quits, especially on the vertical? Like how deep are you going to... On the vertical, 
Like, are you going to go sub-gingival? Like, yeah, I'll, I'll go sub-gingival. I'll try and keep a shell of uh, enamel or root mm-hmm. so I don't perf out the side. I got to make sure that I can re-isolate. Yeah. Uh, if it's really, really deep, maybe it's a good idea to, to, pre, to pre-band before you get to the bottom of your crack. Mm-hmm. Uh, but trust me, like, I don't care how long you've been taking out cracks. You just don't know how long they're going to go. Sometimes it's like two millimeters. Great. So it goes down the whole route. Like you don't know. Some like, go down the whole route. Yeah. But if you go eight millimeters down and that tooth ends up being lost, guess what? You have a much better idea that that was already mid root mm-hmm. because you, you went eight millimeters down and guess what? The cracks still look dark. It's, it still looked like an old crack. Yeah. You know, a fresh crack looks very light. It's very mm-hmm. faint. You know, an old crack has picked up pigment and is very easy to see. And if you're eight millimeters, nine millimeters down, and that crack is not becoming more and more um, less apparent, then, you know, if in six months after your best effort, you know, the patient comes back with the J lesion and you have to take out the tooth and sure enough, that thing was all the way down the route. Guess what? You did the best you can. Yeah. Now, if you just stopped at two millimeters and it was like eight millimeters, mm-hmm. And you could have gotten rid of it. You could have gotten rid of it. Mm-hmm. You just don't know. And so you have that second guessing. Yeah. And one of the people that we trained this last year, before he uh, took the mastership, he had a case where he did a crack dissection and he did the best he could. But unfortunately, the, the tooth ended up being lost. And he was looking back on it and he's like, you know, I went three millimeters. I felt like I, you know, I did good. You know, I put all these different layers and, you know, made this nice restoration on top, but it wasn't the filling. There wasn't the restoration that failed. It was that crack. Mm-hmm. And maybe it, I could have gotten to the bottom of it six months ago. Yeah. But I, but I stopped early. So if you go eight millimeters, I'm not going to make you, I'm not going to say keep going further. Yeah. That becomes very, very challenging in terms of visualization isolation, other problems. But if you go eight millimeters and I see a very good, strong effort, at the very least, you've reduced the lever arm on that fracture. It'll mm-hmm. take more energy for that crack to, to propagate. Yeah. What I hate seeing is people just, you know, taking the easy way out and trying to bond over a crack and say that the adhesive infiltrated underneath that crack. Mm-hmm. I mean, a crack into dent is a gap. If I'm super adamant that I don't have a gap under my underneath a class two composite to the point where after I place my adhesive, I'll go wait five minutes. I'll literally leave the other room so I don't rush the procedure. Mm-hmm. You know, why am I not that adamant in terms of crack dissection? Because a crack into dentin is not biomimetic. Mm-hmm. It's an it's unbonded dentin to itself or weakened yeah. dentin to itself. And so if I can reconnect that by disconnecting it first and then reconnecting it with an adhesive approach, it's a game changer. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's an interesting thing, cracks. So you see a lot of it. And I think it takes a little bit of uh, visualization as well to understand. Because how do you know if it's not propagated to like the pulpal floor and stuff too, right? Like unless yeah, you... Like- so unless they're asymptomatic and then you start endo and then you're like, Oh, the crack is here. Okay. We can't do much now. Like, sorry, like <clears throat> prognosis is not good. Um, 
but so at least, so you're saying as a starting point, uh, again, my goal, you know, to be the one SD, two SD above the mean, um, you're prepping these teeth, you remove at least the peripheral. So you want to make sure the DEJ is crack free within reason yeah, of like, you know, seven, eight mils. If yeah. you can get that crack free, any crack that's in that central stop zone, three millimeters, five millimeters from the occlusal, mm-hmm. um, three millimeters from the adjacent, five millimeters from the occlusal, uh, all of a sudden you get the compression. You yeah. get the compression dome that is stabilizing that area that is disconnected or weakened. And, you know, you can place some fiber over that. You can redirect some. Um, some of the forces, but if you've disconnected around the perimeter, it's going to be much more um, stable. Yeah. You know, remember a, a, a tooth, it's not solid tooth structure. There is a hollow chamber that's filled with the nerve, mm-hmm. but the, that hollowness doesn't weaken the tooth structure because you have that nice compression dome. Mm-hmm. It's able to withstand all those forces. It's the same thing. If you can have a very clean peripheral seal zone, free of caries and you can have a high bond strength and you, you have a peripheral seal zone that's free of cracks, then any areas that are where the bond is compromised, either from leaving um, inner or outer caries near the pulp or a crack, those areas can be supported by the strong perimeter. Yeah. That's good. I mean, there's a lot to it. I think it's, um, like with, like with anything in, in dentistry, when you go down the rabbit hole, you realize how deep and broad it is. Because on a superficial level, you're like, okay, yeah, just edge pine bond, like get the restoration in uh, as you get taught in dental school. Uh, but then you you go into it and you know, you're learning about the, the C factor. It's like, oh, okay, well, what's that? Or the, the thickness of the cusp and, and tooth assessment. And then there's cracks and um, the, the intricacy of bonding, like the technique sensitivity of like proper bonding. Uh, like dentistry is becoming like harder in a lot of ways, right. Compared to what it was like, like in the seventies or something, we would have just, everything was amalgam. Everything was PFM crowns and uh, yeah, it's, way it's harder now. What you're up against, yeah. then all of a sudden you realize maybe I don't want to open up that can of worms. Yeah. There's a reason <laughs> why I don't do my own endo. Yeah. Like there's a reason why I don't do surgery because I know the complications that I can screw up with just a class two composite, which everybody thinks that they're really good at. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't want to have the complications of, you know, routinely missing an MB2 yeah. or instrumenting to the point where I'm like, you know, getting ledges and causing vertical root fractures from my root canals mm-hmm. or, you know, problems with uh, graftings that aren't, you know, taking I mean, when everything works great, dentistry is fun. Yeah. You have those complications, like, and you don't really know how to fix it. Yeah. I mean, in the words of George McFly, I just, I just don't think I can take that kind of rejection. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a really interesting debate. Like, uh, you know, go, uh, going through like the, the oral surgery residency and stuff too, like you see the, the depth of knowledge and, and, you know, experience that this like the max fax guys have going through and stuff too and it, it it's like a, it's like a, you look at it dentistry like do i do any like should everything just be done by specialists or should generalists be doing most things um it's a hard balance to to appreciate that like like you said like am i do i know enough to do good endo do i do know enough to do 
you know, good aesthetic dentistry or good uh, like gum grafting procedures or ortho or all these things. And then there's dentists that just do everything and they do like do it quite well. So I think my, my rationale, my philosophy, like I go by like the 80, 20 rule. Like I think the specialists are there to handle those 20% of cases that are tricky because like a lot of stuff you should be able to, like within the reasonable skill training, you should be able to handle and manage uh, take, like taking out wisdom teeth, for example, like there's going to be the 20% of cases where you're not going to just touch it. And, and that's why they're there for us. So you can send them off to that specialist and they can uh, deal with that and deal with the complications that might arise from that. Uh, same with endo. Uh, you can just stick to your centrals and premolars and things and then refer off the molars and stuff that you're not comfortable with. So um, I think it's good to know your own, know your own boundaries, I guess, like you said, and, and see so if you can deliver good treatment and the treatment that you do deliver, can you manage the complications from there? Cause I think that's like the key. Like if you can't manage complication, then you shouldn't maybe do it at the start. Yeah. Like you spend a year to get better at implants and, and, and surgery. Mm-hmm. Like that was a sacrifice. Yeah. You know, that, that took money out of your pocket, you know, in the short term, but it's also going to pay dividends um, where you're going to have a level of confidence that, you know, I'm never going to attain because I'm not willing to sacrifice that, but like no one can take that away from you. And I'm so glad that are people in other specialties that have, you know, done the 10,000 hours and have, you know, worked through the complications that I can just say, look, what I'm good at, I'm really good at what I'm bad at. I'm okay. And I'm comfortable saying there are better people. Yeah. And as long as you can like be comfortable with, how far you can hit a golf ball, then, then you can realize this is what I have to do to beat the people that hit it further than me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I'm at a skate park and I'm like the old 36 year old weirdo, it's like, I'm With not the risk gonna, guards. I'm protect not protect the money awesome. makers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's like, I'm having fun because I'm comfortable that I'm not competing with the 17 year old that is, you know, so far, so far advanced compared to me. Yeah, no, it's, that's, um, I think that's the beauty of, uh, of dentistry is uh, it is a skill, right? So you can always get better. You can always set some benchmarks for yourself and try and improve. Um, and we're lucky to have, you know, with, with the internet and access to Zoom and courses and experts from around the world and everything like that, uh, that we can access like people who are experts and like learn from them and, and see it. So I think that's a, an awesome place. So I think right now in dentistry, while like dentistry itself might be harder clinically than what it was maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, the standard of dentistry is getting much better because everyone can kind of see what the, the playing field is like, like, exactly. It's like, yeah, maybe it was simpler in, you know, 30, 40 years ago, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you what, you know, before biomimetic dentistry, my dad hated dentistry. Yeah. I remember that as a kid, I'd ask him, how was the day? He's like, Oh, I did a bridge. I did a crown. I did a couple of fillings. I don't want to talk about it. Let's go hit golf. ball." <laughs> I was like, and then all of a sudden he t- talks to my talks to my seventh grade class two years later. Mm-hmm. He's excited about dentistry. Yeah. And this was just like when adhesive dentistry was kind of emerging. Yeah. It wasn't nearly as like complex as what we just talked about in this hour. And so even though it's more complex, the predictability has increased as people have become specialized in certain problems that dentists and patients were facing on a daily basis. Yeah. That's That's amazing. 
That's so cool. I think that's awesome. And I, and I think everyone appreciates what you guys are doing with biomimetics and because, you know, we shouldn't take restorative dentistry as like basic dentistry. I think that's like a misconception that like a lot of dentists have. It's like, it's, and as you get more experience, you know, some dentists want to like, uh, their career goal is to like get beyond drill and fill dentistry and stuff. Like I'll only do more advanced procedures and things. But I think a lot of people should put more weight and appreciation behind what restorative dentistry is because it is bread and butter, but it's not done well by majority. I mean, it's what gets me excited. Like <laughs> a large MOD, a large like MO deep carries, deep cracks. That yeah. stuff is like what gets me like pumped. Yeah. No, it's great. I, I, I tried it. I, I don't not like it. I just, it's, it's finicky. And I think I, I get frustrated because you like, when you don't, like you said, like when you're learning a new skill, when you don't have, like, you can't execute where your brain wants you to execute, like your hands aren't there yet. That's when like that frustration creeps in. I'm sort of in that stage of it now. But, but you know, that's part of the learning process. I yeah. went through it. Everybody goes through it. Yeah. Like, you know, remember like when you're frustrated with something, the anger is the secret sauce. Yeah. <laughs> you know, being a little angry that you weren't as good as you thought you should be. That's what drives. Yeah, I think and that it's important to be self-critical as well if you want to get better. Uh, Davey, man, I really appreciate it. Uh, this has been an awesome, you know, we're in uh, 2021 now. We've, the first one was made three years ago, three and a half years ago. So it's really cool. And I think one thing that I'm proud of, you know, just doing these projects, I mean, the podcast is just like a fun thing that I've just been doing. But when you do something for long enough to be able to have these moments where you can like chat to someone where you've had them on before, years before, to see how far you've come with your career and, uh, how far some of the other guests have come. It's just been an amazing sort of journey to be part of the dental community in, in a way well, and try and contribute. I can't tell you enough, like how many people got introduced to like biomimetic dentistry or the mastership program mm -hmm. from that, that interview where I was like sick as a dog. Yeah. <laughs> and like trying to, you know, oh, you know, get through it with, Sudafed, <laughs> will and a lot of caffeine, a lot yeah. of mountain, and it wasn't as it wasn't as crisp as what we just recorded today. Yeah, but it did the job. <laughs> it super effective. It got people interested. It made them more excited about you know routine dentistry that was just kind of just grinding them down to the point of you know serious frustration or yeah. disillusionment. Mm -hmm. Not and so amazing. like what you're doing, uh, Omid is so important because, you know, there are young dentists that want to be great. Yeah. You're giving them exposures to people that, you know, have a little bit more experience or, or may have been going through the same frustrations as they're currently going through and their experiences, you know, at least to them are really significant. We might look at it as like, Oh, in two more years, you'll, you'll feel really good about how to matrix something that's very hard to matrix. Yeah. When you're going through that learning stage, it's so hard. So many dentists come home and they're just dejected and frustrated and you provide hope or at least give them a vision on like how to proceed to get better. Yeah. And so be very proud of what you've created. No, I appreciate you know, it. I, I love seeing your success and I feel very honored to be uh, be a part of uh, your growth. Thanks. It's uh, it's been a shared history. Uh, like I said, I think this one will be another one of the episodes that gets into the top 10. And um, I think hopefully we'll get to meet up in person again at uh, once 
uh, we get out of this mess that Australia is in and uh, have a few beers and catch up. And I look forward to it. All right. Take care, Omen. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. For all show notes and to access all previous episodes, head over to www.newbiedentist.com. Have a great day.